You may have heard it said before that there are no atheist farmers. I'm sure that there are, like there's, there's gotta be some farmer somewhere who doesn't believe in God, but what that statement is getting at is the fact that if you're a farmer, there's a lot that you do, but there's a lot of risk. There's a lot that you don't do. For instance, you can plant your crops, you can have all kinds of technology to try and provide water and fertilizer, but a farmer doesn't control rain, sunshine, natural disasters. There are some things that you can control if you're a farmer, and there's a host of things that you can't. There are no atheist farmers. Here's another example. Beyond farming, I think it's also true, this same concept that I'm driving at this morning, when it comes to children. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. I don't know how anyone can witness the birth of a child, to be in the OB room when that baby emerges and not believe in God. I think you gotta work really hard to hear the cry of a fresh newborn and in your mind think there's no God in the universe. Looking at that new baby for the first time is an incredible experience. It's, I think it's designed to be a worshipful experience. But what would you think if a new dad, the moment that this new baby emerged, what would you think if he said to his wife, look what we did. Well, at one level, they'd be right. Relax, I'm not going there. But at another level, they had very little to do with this human that they're now holding. For months, this child developed in the womb. They're holding a miracle. I mean, wouldn't it be odd for a dad to walk out into the waiting area where family are perhaps gathered and say, didn't we do a great job? It would just be odd and a bit inappropriate. So what's the connection between farming and childbearing? Well, it connects the concept of our work and God's work. In other words, there's stuff that we do and there's stuff that God does. To be a human in the world means that you're, you're doing things. Everyone works in some way. And the question that's raised in Psalm 127 today is what kind of work do we do? So today's passage is Psalm 127 and the main question in this text is how do we work? That's the main thought. How do we we work. We've been looking at a series of other texts over the last number of weeks. Psalm 127 is a psalm of ascent. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 130. I should say this weekend that we'll spend some time around Christmas Eve. I'll walk through Psalm 130 that says, my soul waits for the Lord Christmas Day, we'll have a small gathering in the chapel, and I'll unpack Psalm 132, your son shall reign. But today's question in Psalm 127 is, how do we work? So that's a question I'd like you to ask yourself. How do you do your work? 
We're at the end of the year. It's a time of reflection, a time of anticipation, a time to maybe think back on the last year. And could you ask this question? How did I do my work this year? A couple weeks ago, Psalm 121 asked the question, where does your help come from? Psalm 124 made a statement, if the Lord had not been on our side. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored us, this was last week, we were like those who dream. I ran into a bunch of you this week and I asked you, how you doing? And every, just about everybody said, living the dream, Mark, living the dream. Glad you're listening. Advent is a time when we celebrate the work of God and the sending of the Christ child. Isaiah 9, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. To be a follower of Jesus means that we receive a gift. We receive grace, we receive forgiveness, and then we live. You may be here today not yet a Christian, and one of the things I hope you'll see today is the implication of a relationship with Jesus that results in a infusion of grace into everything that we do, including our work. In fact, one of the reasons that you may be here searching for answers if you're not yet a Christian is because you're just absolutely exhausted. And part of the reason that you're exhausted is because you're trying to spend your life getting an identity from things that are never meant to give you that kind of fulfillment. Today in Psalm 127, we're, we're gonna see the connection between God's work and our work. And if you're a Christian, this is a, a good moment just to think about how do you reckon with the fact that you've been very busy and very active, and I'm sure much of it's been good. But the question is, what is the connection between your activity and God's activity? What's the connection? How do we do our work? Well, in Psalm 127 today, we are going to look at two particular examples. And I'm gonna have on the screen behind me is this text, just to kind of show you how this all works. This will help you not only see the text, but also maybe could give you an understanding of how you might even study the Bible for yourself. There's two examples that are given, and they center on this particular verse in verse two, that becomes the pivot point for the entire passage, that it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of, notice that phrase, anxious toil, that's really important, for he gives his beloved sleep. So this text has this pivot point, and prior to that, in verse one, he talks about the concept of place, where we live, meaning specifically home, and city, or maybe better, home and security. Notice this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So there's a connection between house and city. Shelter is really important, security is really important. And the psalmist is saying, like, you can do all your stuff, but unless the Lord's in it, it's not gonna work. And so there's this first example of place, and then the second example he gives us, this is verses three through six, where it's in regards to people. Well, we'll unpack this a little bit further, but notice that we see children are a heritage from the Lord, and they're like arrows, and blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them, and he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. And so what we're gonna see is this connection between people, like children, and place, like home, and how does this relate to God's work and our work? So this text is meant to kind of go right where we live, and I wanna remind you it was a psalm of ascent as people were making their way up to Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, there were a series of songs that they would sing, and this was one of them. And it's a, a psalm that reminds them that all the things you did getting to this pilgrimage and all the things you've done over the last year, you need to think about them and to be reminded about them. As they're coming up to Jerusalem and they're seeing walls around that city, they, they, they're, they're being invited to sort of pull their perspective out from the normal grind and their assumptions of life and ask themselves some bigger questions. And that big question is, how do I do my work? Maybe think of it this way. How safe am I really? What am I living for? Or how is God going to help me in the next year? So these are the two examples that we want to unpack, and what I want to do is look at each of them individually. So first, in the first two verses, here is the place, the place. Now notice a number of things. I highlighted it before, just bears repeating. When we think about place, the psalmist identifies two particular places, home and city. These two represent elements that are foundational to life and survival. You need shelter and you need security. Notice also the prevalence of the word unless, unless the Lord builds the house and unless the Lord watches over the city. The idea is that there's something normal that's taking place. The city is, or house is being built, the city is being guarded, and yet it's possible to be doing certain things and not doing them in the right way, or doing them in such a way that you forget how vulnerable you really are. The watchman is watching, the builder is building. In fact, look at the text, here it is. Here's the watchman. The watchman needs to stay awake and the builder is building the house. But notice, while the watchman and the builder, humans are doing their work, there's also God who is building and God who is watching. So there's a connection here, watches and watchmen. Build and builder. So you're building, but God is building. The watchman is watching, but God is watching. Don't miss the fact that the Lord and humans are involved in similar or maybe even the same activities. But it isn't just that human building, humans are building and working, but rather it is that as they're building and as they're doing their work, God is doing work. Verse one, we see a phrase, a word, phrase labor in vain, and this word labor is directly connected to what we see in the book of Genesis with the curse that comes on the activity of mankind. And also we hear in Ecclesiastes chapter one this warning, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? One Old Testament scholar put it this way, we can plan carefully, we can work hard, we can be responsible, we can creatively implement our plans, and everything can go wrong in a way we would have never foreseen. You know, the longer I live, the more I realize how true that is. So much of life is dependent upon circumstances over which we have very little control. I just was thinking about this driving in that I think I've told this story or mentioned this several years ago, but I, I wouldn't be the lead pastor of College Park Church were it not for a conversation that happened on a beach in an Adirondack chair in Gull Lake, Michigan. Like, what are you talking about? Well, in college I was traveling with a, a team and I was at a uh, conference 
ground called Gull Lake, and I was sitting in an Androndack chair, and next to me was a guy who was a music pastor at a church, and I just said, hey, do, do you know anyone who's looking for an intern? I'd like to do an internship my final year at college, and his church happened to be, and I met a guy who then introduced me to a seminary professor named Dr. Jim Greer, who became my mentor and then caused me to stay at a particular seminary, and that particular seminary dean named Dr. Jim Greer was deeply embedded in the culture of this church, and when College Park Church was looking for a pastor, he ended up talking to me. And so my road to College Park began in an Adirondack chair in a beach at Gull Lake, Michigan. Your life is exactly the same. You're in a position, or you have relationships, and you know that like, you could trace it all back and realize this was the moment where things changed. You met the right person, you happened to be in the right class, you got the right job opportunity. The banker said, yeah, we think your vision's amazing, we'll give you that money. Those of you who are married, you met your spouse, and you know like all the circumstances that, that happened, I mean, the way in which God wove all of that together. You see, so much of our lives, where we're working, 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 but there's this something underneath all of this that's really important and really significant. The kind of providence that guides and directs our life. The challenge is, is if we separate it from what God is doing, we end up having a human experience where we're more marked by anxiety than we are rest. In fact, look back at verse two. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. It's not new working yourself harder. Like he's saying, some of you have just tried to work harder and you're eating the bread. Notice this, this resonates with so many of us. The, you're eating the bread of anxious toil. It's like you're making stuff and you're eating it and it's actually making you more anxious. And this vicious cycle is germane to our humanity. So here we see this first example of the way in which we can pursue something good. A home and protection of a city is not bad, but we can do it in a way that isn't good. Homes, city, food, they're all beautiful things. But I think you know it to be true that we can pursue them in ways that work God right out of the equation. So that's the first example. Unless the Lord builds the house, they build it in vain. So that relates to place. Let's now look at people. The second section here is often used as an affirmation of the bearing of children or having children. So behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And let me just state from the outset, yes, absolutely, having children is a blessing. There's something marvelous about new image bearers and we should value new human life. In fact, one of the ways that the influence of the church takes place through culture is by godly people bearing and raising children and as best as they can, helping them to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord. While all that's true, the question we have to ask is, how does verse three relate to the previous verses? So we have verses three through five of Psalm 127. How do they relate to the previous section that we just looked at? Let me suggest to you how. I think that when he says, behold, he's giving a vivid example of what he's just talked about, but he's using a different kind of illustration. Instead of building a house or uh, guarding a city, 
He's now talking about children. Notice the blessings. He describes them first as children are a heritage from the Lord. Secondly, they are a fruit of a womb. And third, they are rewarding. The idea is that children are a heritage. They outlive you, that they're a good provision, they're fruit. And third, that they're a reward. So he's, he's indicating that there's a blessing here. And certainly the bearing of children, as I said earlier, and obviously involves some sort of human activity. It's a creative means of expanding image bearers on the earth. And yet so much of what happens in the framework of creating new life has very little to do with us. He then describes the children in a warlike metaphor, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. That's more of an offensive position. And then verse five, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies. So this is more of a defensive position. If the first verse, verse four, was more offensive, they're like arrows ready to be deployed. Verse five, when you're having to defend yourself, when he speaks with his enemies in the gate, the evidence of his credibility will be seen in the lives of his children. So in other words, the battle of life and the battle in culture requires strong families and children who could have a multiplying effect along with the impact of their parents. What he's saying here is that what some of you know, I know, is that when you have adult children, you're pretty amazed at how much more mature in some ways they are than you were or are, right? Maybe you see them raising kids and you're like, that's awesome, I sure wish we did that, right? And your kids probably think that as well, by the way, just FYI. <laughs> or you know, realizing that your children know so much more than you in a particular space. I mean, before you were looking like trying to build Legos and you were like, I don't know how to do this. And they were telling you, but now suddenly they're talking to you about a computer issue or a medical question or some issue in their particular field of study and their knowledge is superior to yours. So many of you like me just find yourself being quiet so you can sound smart by saying nothing, right? <laughs> this is one of the, the ways that we see the miracle of God. Eugene Peterson says this, what do we do to get these kinds of sons and daughters? Very little. The entire miracle of reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we would call our work. We did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow. We participated in an act of love that was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. I mean, wouldn't it be odd for a parent if somebody were to say, how did your kids get like this, for you to then say, oh, it was all because of me. There'd be an enormous eye roll, almost a disgusting response, because that's just the wrong way to think about it. And yet at one level, it's kind of true, but it's not true like that. There's something good, but not something complete when it comes to parenting. There's something good about building a house, but you know you can't do it completely on your own. There's something good about being a watchman, but 
you gotta remember security is more than just what's embedded in the watchman's ability to stay awake. So what this text is driving at is that the way in which we work always needs to remain connected to another realm of what is actually happening while we're doing our stuff and making things happen. I'll give you an illustration. Take this sermon even right now. Right now, my brain and tongue and eyes, my entire body are working together to try and form words. Usually that goes well, sometimes it doesn't. I made a huge mistake in the first service. I was trying to make the point that men married up and I said something to the effect of, you know, some of you men married the wrong woman. (laughs) And then I meant to say something to the effect of, you know, you really married up and you should be thankful, you know, but I forgot that second line. And so I said, literally, I think, um, you know, some of you married the wrong woman and all the men said, and like no one responded. And I was like, what's wrong with this? I thought they were going to say amen, and some guy, I'm not saying amen to that, brother, you know, so. <laughs> I'm thankful that sometimes you fill in words, you know, oh, I know what he meant, right? Those words go through my mouth, they go out into the space, they land on your ears, they're processed by your eardrum into some neurons that go into your brain in order to form words that have meaning. Think of all that, it just happens, it just happens. And yet, does that just happen? Like in order for that to happen, I have to spend hours working on a sermon. In order for that to happen, you have to be listening. Like not looking at your phone at the score of the World Cup right now. I see you, I see you, I got you. So in order to be doing, you gotta gotta stay in the zone. Like that doesn't just happen, It, it needs activity and activity sometimes that we take for granted. A few years ago, I was trying to bench downstairs in my basement and was doing probably more weight than what I should, but you know, and I tried to click it in and I missed and I didn't click it in right as I was ending the lift and the bar fell and hit the back of my head and I had some kind of sort of mild concussion and how I knew that I had it was in the process of preaching, I couldn't pull the words up like I normally can. There was a slowness, a delay, it felt harder, it was, it was work and it just makes you realize that everything that we do, like we're doing it, but there's a whole other thing behind the scenes that's happening, and in order for us to do what we do, all the other other stuff has to also work. If the Lord doesn't preserve my body, if he doesn't preserve yours, there's no hearing on your part, there's no speaking on my part. And what's more, if the Lord doesn't apply the word in your life, it's impossible for life change to happen. It's true, isn't it? We can slip into ways of working and living where we begin to live as if God isn't a part of the equation. And this psalm reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, they build it in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, there's no security. Reminds us that children are a heritage from the Lord, that they're a living example of, yeah, you're working, but there's also the kind of work that God needs to do. So with that in mind, let me give you four ways to think about work. Three that are bad and one that's good. So three, four ways to think about how we work. The first one I'm going to describe as godless. 
You can think of this as the practical atheist, the person that puts themselves in the middle with their work and there's not even a thought of God as they move through life. This person is marked by arrogance. This person is marked by having too much experience. Oh boy, hold on a second there. We're gonna fix this. Whoop, whoop, there we go. As that. There we go. Okay, let's try our spell check again. There we go. Arrogance and experience. Here's what happens. And I, and I sense this, the older I get, the more I know, the easier it is to do something without even thinking about needing God's help. And listen to me, friend, just because you have a degree in X doesn't mean you're an expert in Y. Sometimes we begin to think that because we know a lot in one space that we think we know a lot in every space and we begin to live in such a way that we don't even act as though God is even part of our equation. Often it's people who have found great success. In their desperation when they weren't successful, well, they're very mindful of God. But once they got successful, suddenly now they're just kind of living on divine autopilot where they really don't even think about what God would say. They don't think about the intersection between their work and God's work. And quite frankly, in some cases, this becomes deeply tied to their identity. They're working, 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 and no thought of how God factors into the equation. You may be here today and you're not a Christian and that actually describes you. You're trying to get your sense of identity from what you do in life and as a result, you're overworked, you're really tired, you're a bit grumpy and angry because you're trying to get fulfillment from something that's not gonna be able to hold your fulfillment. So one of the ways we work is in a godless way. Here's another way. We work in a passive way. What's this? This is where I sort of think about God in the middle of my life, but I'm not gonna work anymore because of any number of reasons. Maybe it's because I've given up, because I feel hopeless, maybe because I'm filled with fear, but maybe you've even heard about this kind of new trend called quiet quitting, <laughs> meaning people are showing up, but they're not showing up, you know what I'm saying? They're, they're, they're coming, but they're, they're really not trying, or they're doing the very bare minimum that they possibly can. This person is in a defensive position, and they're either scared of failure, or they're in a spot where they don't want to um, have any more additional disappointment, and so as a result, there's just this latent level of passivity. Third, we'll call this the arrogant We'll call this the arrogant one. And in this case, I think, this is one that I think I resonate with deeply and I suspect that you will as well. It is that we put ourselves at the center. God is involved, but we want God to bless our activities. God, I got a wonderful plan for your life, I just need you to say yes. Sign here. We, 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 we talk about it in language that, quite frankly, sounds really spiritual, but quite frankly, it isn't. It's a bit hypocritical. Because what we're essentially doing 
is we're using God, so to speak, as our lackey. God isn't practically the builder, he's just the building inspector. I'll build it, you just be sure it's right. Or God's not the watchman, I'm the watchman, I just need a security system. I just need to punch in the code, God, and be sure that you protect me from certain things, but not everything. This category is often marked by blindness and spiritual hypocrisy. Unless the Lord builds the house, they those who build it labor in vain. So what, what's the fourth category? And this is the last one I would suggest maybe ways, a way to think about it. Think of it as a pilgrim. Psalm 127 was written to people who are on their way to Jerusalem and it's inviting them to be sure that their work centers on God. But it also means that there are things in their life that they're gonna be doing and they're gonna be working hard, but it means they're working from the right vantage point, such that God is central, that his work is the first work and the greatest work, and then it becomes foundational to everything else, and that his grace and power are the means by which other works happen. And the idea is to continually be reminded of, it's not just that I need God's help, It's that if God doesn't do this as I'm doing my thing, there will be no true success. It's a reminder that we're involved. It's a reminder that you're gonna work hard. There's gonna be tears, there's gonna be difficulties, but yet you're not doing it alone. You could think of it with the word, as the word with. You're going to do it with, God's going to go with you, you're going to go with him. Just think of it from a parenting analogy. If you've raised children or if you're in the middle of that, you know that parenting is is a lot of work and there's some things that you can control and there's a host of things that you can't control. You try and put your kids in the best possible environment, but you can't reach the heart. Like there's a spiritual reality. Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you don't believe in divine election, just preach the gospel to a child. (laughs) And his point is, unless God sovereignly moves, there's no hope. There needs to be a supernatural encounter. To change the heart from the inside out requires a supernatural work of God. Several years ago when my wife was teaching in our kindergarten class, she was using a a story and an example of the Ten Commandments and was encouraging kids to memorize all the Ten Commandments. And she came home one day, was, was quite sad. And I said, what's the matter? She said, well, we had a kind of a bad day in class. I said, what happened? She said, well, you know that memorizing the Ten Commandments thing? And I said, yeah. Well, we had a kid lie about memorizing the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, yeah. Kind of missed the point of the Ten Commandments, right? So, but isn't that what we do as humans? And, and we know the fact that you can put a kid in a class, you could put them in the context of the very best spiritual resources, but God by his spirit has to be able to do that work. And that's not just true for child rearing, that's true for everything that we do. So at the end of the year, here we are with Advent, celebrating the greatest gift that we could have ever been given. Can I just invite you to think about all the things that you've done, the things that you're doing, your striving, your activity, your busyness. Some of you, you're overworking because your identity is so tied to what you do. 
Some of you, you're feeling anxious or very insecure because things are different in your life now than what they were in the last year or two years, and you're having to kind of separate what you do from who you are. Others of you have seen a year where, man, you have just received all kinds of praise and accolades. You just came from your, your Christmas uh, dinner at your office and you got some award and you walked out thinking, I killed it this year. And you just need to know, unless the Lord builds the house, you're gonna kill it. You're gonna kill it. Or maybe you've worked really hard and you're finally seeing the fruit and you're beginning to think, well, maybe I can just kind of coast and receive some of the blessing for what the Lord has given and you're beginning to separate what you're receiving from the grace and the mercy of Christ. Some of you are coming to church today and you're absolutely exhausted because you've been so busy and so active and this message is for pilgrims on a journey to ask them, who's been working? You, the Lord, and how? How is it that we do our work? This text isn't against work, oh, it's actually pro-work, it's just pro the right kind of work. And can I remind you what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter two? So we move this over in the New Testament. Notice how the exact same idea appears. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. But notice this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works that we should walk in them. And the connection between grace and activity is the means by which we understand what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that my life has been impacted by the mercy and the grace of Jesus. That's foundational, that doesn't change. Year after year, job after job, season after season, role after role, the thing that's underneath my life is I'm a sinner rescued by the mercy and grace of Christ. And yet, that also means there's a lot to do to bring God's kingdom into the world, to extend the mission of God's grace out into the marketplace and into our neighborhoods and into our homes and into our families. And this is how Christians work without working themselves to death. Because unless the Lord builds the house, they're gonna labor in vain, but you still have to build your house, unless the watchman watches, the city is going to be insecure. But if you just trust in the watchman, it's still going to be insecure. Listen to what one author says, the pilgrim then is not at the center. The Lord is at the center. No matter how hard they struggle to get there, no matter what they did in the way of heroics, fending off bandits, clubbing lions, crushing wolves, that is not what is to be sung. Psalm 127 insists on a perspective in which our effort is at the periphery and God's work is at the center. You work, but you work at the periphery and God works at the center, unless the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain who build it. Jesus, help us in our work. Help us to see the ways in which our work can become an idol, can become too much of our identity, and at the same time, 
Oh Lord, help us to not be the kind of people who squander opportunities right in front of us. Thank you for the challenging balance that this text calls us to, the kind of managing of attention of I'm doing but God's doing and how do I figure that out? Thank you that that very question in and of itself helps to lead us to humility and dependency. And so God, would you now help these truths to be heard and received and to go to a particular place in our hearts where they are needed and can be applied as you see fit. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace work in our lives so that we can do our work, knowing that unless you build it, it won't work. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.